I think for a long time we've used, we want to increase diversity as the kind of sentence, right? Which sort of puts the label and the problem on that group of people, the people that we haven't yet been currently attracting. Whereas I think the shift in talking about we want to address over-representation as an example actually helps our minds understand the problem that we're trying to solve, right? That's not about those it's around we've got an over-representation issue so if we want to build better products and services if we want to be better at research and design if we want to etc 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 actually we really recognize that we need to build some collective intelligence and have all kinds of lived experiences be that industry experience be that educational experience be that your personal demographics and your lived experiences actually addressing over-representation, some of the really biggest awful things in the world that have gone wrong, there have been really super smart, intelligent people that were involved, but they all had a really similar kind of profile. So when other people that perhaps weren't in that immediate bubble were speaking up and offering another suggestion, it just wasn't being heard. So I think it's a real subtlety, but it's the over-representation that's the problem, not the lack of diversity. Hi. My name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to a company's bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organisation that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello. And welcome to episode 35 of Why Care. My name is Nadia Nagamutu and I am your host. I'm incredibly excited to speak to Catherine Garrard, founder of Compelling Culture and author of Conscious Inclusion, How to Do EDI One Decision at a Time, which published in April this year. Catherine was previously the head of inclusion at Sky, where she led the company to become the most inclusive employer in the UK, with 80% of teams increasing their diversity. In this episode, we discuss the distinction between positive action and positive discrimination, why companies don't address bias and exclusionary behaviour, how tackling wealth disparity could hugely accelerate progress in DEI, and why the terms overrepresented and underrepresented may serve us better than using the terms majority and minority groups. One of the things I loved about chatting to Catherine is her down-to-earth, straight-talking and practical nature. She shares so many stories and analogies which help break down the complexity of DEI. There is so much useful knowledge and advice in this episode. Enjoy. 
Catherine, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Why Care podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and for everything that you're about to share. I'm incredibly excited to have you. Oh, me too. And thank you for having me. It's great to be talking to you. I was reflecting on when it was that we last spoke. And whilst we're in the same spheres of DEI, the last time we spoke, you were still working at Sky, right? Yeah. So long time ago, really. It's a long time ago. So much has happened then with your own company and, of course, your amazing book, Conscious Inclusion. So just to kick off and so that people can get familiar with you and who you are, if you wouldn't mind just sharing your background, but also how you came to write this book. Sure. So I think like many people, I don't necessarily have a a straightforward or obvious career path. Even from a child, I just had this internal sense that the world didn't work fairly for everyone and wanted to do things to make that better. So I actually spent my first 10 years in childcare and then I spent 15 years in HR. The consistent thread on the way through that was that for people to develop and grow and thrive at their own pace, whether they're very young people, At the start of their lives or people in in business and in the workplace, the environment has to be good. So my work background has really been about people's experience and finding out what the problems are, working out how to address them and then communicating and bringing people together and listening. So that's what kind of drives me to it. And then actually working on inclusion itself was when I went to Sky I was responsible for employee engagement, diversity and inclusion, and the Sky Forum. So it was bringing all the worlds together where we had feedback from employees to make the experience better for everyone. What a beautiful insight into who you are and what drives you. So I get it. I get why this work in DEI floats your boat, why you get excited by it. It Sounds very similar to me. Absolutely resonates. Tell me what's the thought behind this book? Why did you decide, right, I'm going to write this book? Yes, I think I've had this really lovely, rich and varied career. I've worked in lots of different organisations and I find it fascinating because I'm always learning. But there's just this consistency across all of those different environments that people are a bit scared of this stuff. They tend to fall into some of the similar traps. They're nervous about doing the wrong thing. They are committed. I don't see a shortage of commitment. Certainly the organisations that approach me to do some work together, they're really up for it and they're just saying, help, you know, how do we do it? We've got really committed, passionate people. You know, we might be listening to our regulator, for example. We've done some really good things across the organisation, but we just can't yet bring it together and turn it into a plan that we've got confidence in and so that we can track our progress. So For me, like I've read loads of books by brilliant people and I've learned tons from them, but I felt like there was a gap. And that gap was how do you take all that knowledge and that enthusiasm and that motivation and turn that into really practical, step-by-step, simple things that people can do in any department, in any team and in any level. And that's really what the book was about. And I love that. And I love actually how you framed the book in a set of decisions. Tell me the thinking behind the language. Why not action number one? Or you could have used a number of different terms by way of reference of each of the points that you're making throughout the book. 
Why decision? So went backwards and forwards between decision and action, but actually... Oh, did you? Not too much because the subtitles for the book, so the book's called Conscious Inclusion. Yes. And let me just explain that first, actually. So the reason it's called Conscious Inclusion is because over 90% of our thoughts and decisions that we make every day to navigate our lives are automatic. And it's really useful, you know. The work of inclusion is about getting your brain into that more conscious state, which is the 5 or 10%, which recognizes you don't know everything, knows that you need to get some research, knows that you need to get some feedback, and you need to ask more questions before you make those decisions. So the overall title is Conscious Inclusion, but the subtitle is How to Do EDI, which is Equity, Diversity or Inclusion, one decision at a time. Yes. But when multiple people gave me that feedback, I was like, okay, you know, this is the whole point of asking for feedback. I realized that actually what they were looking for was even more simplicity. And I thought there's this subtitle on the front called One Decision at a Time. So actually, if I can break down those parts even more into decisions, it makes it more bite-sized and easier to refer back to later. Well, I have to say, I loved the chunking down into decisions. I thought it was incredibly digestible, really accessible, and I could see practically how anyone could pick it up and dip in without feeling overwhelmed. Because I think that there is something, particularly as inclusive leaders, and I work with obviously a lot of leaders who are feeling this sense of, I don't know where to start, I, you know. As you're saying, like, I'm scared, I'm fearful, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to do the right thing? And I really love your storytelling in the book as well. So one of, quite early on, actually, it sits with me, this story of a delivery driver who came to your house and was sort of a bit leery, for want of a better word, and made you feel uncomfortable. I'm curious about that story. Maybe you can share briefly that story. But what is it that means that organizations allow people like that to get away with inappropriate behavior. So just to set the scene with the story, in brief, this was a regular delivery driver. I've spoken to them many times over a period of time, but there was one occasion where I was washing the car on the drive and the driver had asked me why I didn't take it to the local car wash. And I said, oh, it can be a little bit intimidating. You know, if there's lots and lots of men coming towards you, sometimes you get a look or a comment, it's just a bit uncomfortable. So I just choose to do it at home. And that turned quite quickly into what he thought about what I looked like and what he'd like to do. And Unbelievable. it was just bizarre. It was really bizarre, frankly. And I was like, you've literally just asked me why I don't do something. And then you've done the thing that I've told you is why I don't go and do something. Yeah. So I was really shocked and just focused very much on washing the car and disengaging. They went off on their rounds and then uh, my neighbour came out and I jumped and there was this short exchange. She said, are you okay? And I said, oh, you know, this has just happened. She was like, oh, that's not good. Anyway, I forgot all about it because you get on with your life and blah, blah. The next time that person knocked on my door was to uh, deliver a parcel and I was wearing shorts and their response was, oh, look at those legs as they took a picture of my legs and not the parcel and then showed me the device and said, I'll be keeping that one. Like, I was annoyed when I read the book. I'm even more annoyed hearing it directly from you. So you challenged then, right? So at that point, you said, no, this isn't okay. I'm going to contact the company. Initially, I actually responded to the delivery worker and I just said, 
that's not okay. You're turning into one of those men that I avoid that you asked me about last time. And he said, oh, I am one of those men and laughed and walked off. And in my rage, I text my next door neighbor the exchange that had just happened, which turned out to be quite useful evidence later. She came around and knocked on the door and just said, that's awful, that's sexual harassment. So validated my experience, which is really powerful. Yes. It's something I've really learned in the work that I do. Validating somebody's experience can be very helpful. So initially, I went to the company and reported it through their usual customer service route. Right. And I just got this, oh, we'll look into it. It takes us 14 days or something type of response. And I pushed quite a lot, you know, my background, the work that I do. And I was like, I, I don't think that's appropriate in this circumstance. This person knows where I live. The behavior has rapidly escalated from the first occasion to the second occasion. What's going to happen next time? And I was obviously speaking to somebody that didn't have much power or influence in that organization. So they were being kind and friendly, but following their process, but their yeah. process wasn't adequate. So I took to LinkedIn and I found the senior people and went on Google and I sent some messages to senior people. And again, initially I was ignored. So I kept escalating, got all the way through to the CEO's office and there was an investigation and all that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, the delivery worker kept arriving, not only on my street, but I share the driveway with my next door neighbor. So actually outside my front door. And I was ending up putting trousers on every time somebody knocked on the door after this because it just kind of shook me. Of course. Anyway... Long story short, their own internal processes were failing left, right and centre. So in the end, I did report it to the police and the police took it really seriously as a safeguarding issue because obviously, you know, this person knew where I lived and the escalation. But to come back to your question about why this might happen, I guess a really honest answer is I don't know. Like maybe the people in charge don't haven't experienced things like this before, so they don't fully understand the kind of fear that that created for me. And so they just say, oh, if we ignore it, they'll go away. Or maybe they're more interested in shareholder value or the product or the service they deliver than actually the people that they employ or the product or service they're, you know, the people that they're delivering to. But I think there's a perhaps a more traditional culture in the organisation of command and control. Then maybe they're just not very good at listening. You know, when people speak up and say there's a problem here and it's not working because I was coming at it from a one, I want to be protected, but two, you know, there's some reassurance that needs here in terms of your staff awareness of what's appropriate when they're going to people's homes. Right. What's the wider implication for everybody, you know, exactly in their house with somebody knocking on their door kind of thing. So I was very much trying to address the root cause because that's what drives me. Yeah. But I think maybe if, you know, as an organisation, not very good at listening to people, then you end up a bit stuck. It just riled me so much to hear that story and to know that such minimal attention and action was placed on something incredibly serious, actually. And whilst obviously we're shining a light on this particular delivery company, fair enough, but actually there are many companies out there who are led by people who aren't taking the time to learn about other people's experiences, learn about other people's realities, really turning around and saying, well, I don't think it's a big deal. You know, you're making a big deal out of it. The work around inclusive leadership is so important here. So in thinking about the organisations that are doing something, that are taking action, there are are a lot of positive action programmes. 
there are a lot of organizations that are saying, right, well, we recognize that there are fewer women in certain places or that ethnic minority individuals face certain barriers over others. So what is great, and I think you talk about this in your book around the benefits of such programs, but there are also some downsides as well of organizations launching into that sort of positive action in order to create an inclusive culture. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think it's worth just spending a little bit of time talking about the difference between positive discrimination and positive action because they often get mixed up. So positive discrimination, bluntly, is illegal. Yes. That is hiring me just because I'm a woman because you want more women. I mean, organisations would fail if they were doing that. You know, you need to hire me because I've got skills and experiences that are relevant to the job that you're looking for. So that's the first point. Positive action is more about recognising, let's just stick with gender for this example, we would like to attract more women into these types of roles. So it might be technology or engineering or that kind of thing. And we recognise that what we've been doing so far perhaps hasn't been working. You know, we might have looked at the language in our job adverts, we might have looked at where we're recruiting, but we just don't see the number of applications. So what positive action does is it goes further back in the process and goes, how can we share with women what it's like to work in this organisation? How can we create some informal networks and introduce people, come and meet people in our organisation so that they can learn about, you know, this environment or the particular skill sets that we're looking for? So that might be insight sessions, might be getting a group together on Zoom. You can very deliberately market a session for the group of people that you haven't yet previously been attracting. You can also build relationships and partnerships with external organisations who do have a really strong network with the people you haven't yet previously been appealing to. And that positive action is all about, if you think about sports, you don't wait for a player to get injured before you find their replacement. It's everything you're doing in advance so that you've got this incredible potential reserves bench of talent at the point when you next interview. And then when you've got vacancies for the types of jobs that you've been talking about, you open up that process to everybody. So you don't say you can't apply because you're not a woman. You open up that process to everybody and then it is a fair and open process, right? But what you've done beforehand by warming more people up to your organisation that perhaps weren't looking at you before, you've just created a greater mix of your likely applications when you do have a vacancy. So that's just the distinction between positive discrimination and positive action. In terms of where I've seen it be a bit clumsy and a bit wonky <laughs> is when organisations go full steam on trying to address the overrepresentation and increase diversity, but they haven't done the bit that goes on what's the environment like when people turn up. Yeah. So if the environment has been predominantly male for a long time or predominantly white for a long time or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you do all of this work to bring people in, you go, great, but you haven't kind of talked about this with all of the people that work in that world and why you're doing it and why it's important. And importantly, how people can help you and get involved to achieve the more inclusive teams in the environment, then all the previous people, the risk is the message, well, I'm never going to get a job or get promoted again, because all they want now is people who aren't like me. 
So always, you know, one of my big messages in the book is whatever you're trying to do, build with, not for. Don't try and solve it all on your own. Involve the people who know the environment or the jobs or the industry or the whatever it is. Involve them, share the challenge, get a rich mix of people involved in kind of research and design and then start to build your solutions. Yes. And you talk about the backlash that's potentially there, that is there, that exists in many organisations having put in place quotas or been just really explicit that we're after more women. And I think that there is what you've described so clearly there is that it's the work that you're putting in beforehand to make sure you've got diverse people in, in the application process, you know, that you're feeding in to the potential into the system, whilst also working with the current system so that they know how to receive this I think there's a really important point to be made here is that inclusion is about everybody, right? So yes. again, the risk is we want more women. People here, we don't want any more men. Yes. So actually, in terms of making sure you've got an inclusive environment, it's working with the men and working out what it is that they need as much as it is around what you need to get more women in as well. So inclusion, there's a big risk is inclusion can become exclusive if you just focus on one group or another group without kind of pulling everybody in together. One of the things that's stays with me in your book is you share a statistic that the CEO incomes were 351 times as much as a typical worker. Okay. 351 times the amount that a typical worker. And I love that you bring in how the world economy is related to inclusion and actually some of the discrepancy in pay what do you anticipate organisations doing with that? Do you anticipate that CEOs should be reducing their pay to accommodate this discrepancy? Or how do we even start repairing that? Yeah, it's a big question. And I think the distribution of wealth is the real inclusion challenge. <laughs> because actually, if you look at who benefits the most and who benefits the least across society, as well as in your organisation... That cuts across every single demographic. So actually, you know, the more that you've got this huge wealth divide, the more disparities there are in people's lives. And obviously, if you've then got people from kind of diverse groups, it's just worse and worse and worse. It just layers on and on and on. But if you kind of think about the one thing that cuts through everything, I think it's wealth right? And it's opportunity and standard of living. There was lots of uniting during the pandemic in terms of we were all going through this massive global thing together, but it really highlighted the differences and experiences in people's lives and their standard of living. So I'm not going to pretend to have the answer here. <laughs> it blows my mind. It's huge. But one of the things that I encourage one of the decisions I encourage in the book is start tracking your CEO to average worker pay ratio. Because a lot of organisations wouldn't know it or would they? They wouldn't have calculated it necessarily. No. And then use that to influence your pay policy. Yeah. So when you're thinking about pay and bonus and benefits and all of that, you know, like the total package and the offering that you give for employees is kind of deciding who you're about really. What does that look like and what are the decisions and the choices that you might make? And it's not about you're awful, it's terrible, but I really genuinely think data helps people understand what the problem is. Yes, I agree. So if you can be tracking things like that year on year and using it to influence policy, it just drives a different conversation in the committees that are making you know, decisions and choices, back to that word decisions again, <laughs> around what you might do as an organisation. 
I can imagine that's quite threatening for a CEO, potentially, right? That all of a sudden now, the light's being shone on them about how much they're taking home, their take-home pay, and it could end up really backfiring on them if they give the go-ahead to work out this pay ratio. People are going to be in arms almost about how much they're taking home and therefore feel really disgruntled. Yes, I think it is really confronting. You're right. But I think step one is do it in private. I'm not necessarily saying go and post it on your website, but do it in private, right? As the people kind of leading or governing that organisation, just make that one of the things that you check year on year. And then when you've got to a point of going, actually, this is the decisions and the choices we want to make, and this is why, then you might choose to go more broadly. But step one, do it in private. Yeah. This sort of links in a little bit with decision 10, which is around redefining what a good leader is. So because for me, that CEO needs to be another level of good leadership, right? This, this CEO needs to be open, humble, really purpose-driven for inclusion. And there are, I don't know how many there are out there, quite honestly, who would go that far. And we know that the foundation of leadership is patriarchal. We know that everything in, because of history and because of all the research that's been done on what an outstanding leader is, typically it's been done on men because they're the ones who have been the potential subjects of research have been men. So how do we go about redefining leadership? I have a big question. I love it. I just want to say as well that I think we've not equipped leaders to do this stuff well. And I think we need to acknowledge if I think about the amount of money that gets spent on leadership development and your top, you know, however many people in the organization, if being an inclusive leader hasn't been a part of that, we've not been equipping those leaders to be successful here. Right. So I think we just have to acknowledge that all of the messaging that leaders have perhaps have until a point of time that hasn't included being inclusive, I can't kind of blame the situation that we find ourselves in today. So that's kind of one thing I want to mention. I also think when you think about, you know, whose careers are people sponsoring, who's getting nominated for the leadership programs, if we're looking at external norm groups or global norm groups, for example, is that what a good leader looks like in your organisation? Actually, maybe take a step back, look at your own organisation's purpose and values and then really closely look at whether or not your leadership investment is aligned to that and is generating the right behaviours. So it's as much about what you need to deliver, of course, but also how you're going to deliver it as well. And I don't see many bonus structures that talk about the day-to-day culture and experience of the people in the organisation or building inclusive teams, as an example. So this is a maturity point, right? I think that one, equip leaders with kind of skills, knowledge in a safe place to learn about how to be an inclusive leader if they haven't had that investment before. Like we absolutely need to do that. Mm -hmm. Then some other steps are look at who gets nominated for leadership programs, whether it's self-nomination or leadership nomination. Is it more of the same every single time that nomination period comes around? And if that's true, change your marketing, change your approach, set some kind of guidelines for ratios of what you'd like to achieve, and then segment your marketing accordingly. So it might be that you still nominate the initial two or three people in your team, but now you nominate another one or two because you recognize, oh, hang on a minute, let's do that. And then I think you need to track things like career progression. If I think about the leadership quotes that have been put up on a screen or printed in a handout over my time, 
it's Henry Ford, Richard yes. Branson, yes. Et, cetera, et cetera. They're all white men, right? So even just that subtlety in your materials, change that up around who you're holding up around what a good leader looks like. Because otherwise, the sort of subliminal message, if you find yourself in a leadership development program that your organisation has invested in, and you are somebody that is underrepresented in that group, you're one of the few, the message is sort of you're lucky to be here, right? Yeah. yeah. And the message to all the other people in that room is that, Actually, this organization isn't that serious about diversity and inclusion because we're putting this investment into developing people and equipping them in their careers. But most of the room look a little bit similar or have similar industry and background. So it's not ripping it all up and starting again, but it's looking at what you've got and the investment is good. But let's really set the leaders up for success that haven't had that so far and then look at food. Who are we choosing to invest in? And is that adding up to what we're trying to achieve as an organisation? And quite often that's all disconnected at the moment when I start working with organisations. It's so complex, isn't it? Because as I'm hearing you speak, I'm thinking, okay, so of course they want to bring in different people onto these leadership development programmes so that actually that redefinition as we're talking about around leadership is that you may not have seen yourself as a leader because maybe currently we don't have leaders that look like you in the organisation, but we absolutely see your potential and would like to invest in you and embrace the leader that you're going to be as opposed to moulding you (laughs) into the leadership mould of the current group, right? Which would be pointless. The complexity is that organisations want a quality of leadership or consistency in leadership in terms of this is what it means. That's why we have leadership frameworks, for example, right? We want similar behaviours to be demonstrated that are aligned to organisational values and what have you. But equally, we want everyone to lead in a different way. Feels like I wonder if organisations are slightly confused almost as to how they achieve that. Yeah, again, I would come back to kind of Build with, not for. The team that are doing the leadership development, investment or design and delivery or working with external partners, if that team will share a similar demographic profile and they're trying to change the experience and the materials and the norm groups and all of those things that are helpful, right? I'm just suggesting then perhaps not as inclusive as they could be, but they want to adapt and evolve them to better suit what the organisation is trying to achieve and help people build their careers and set people up for success, don't do it in isolation. Do it in collaboration. Yes. I'm interested in a quote from your book in the section around how to create an inclusive culture. And you say, to create the movement that is culture change, do one thing brilliantly until it sticks. And I love it because I feel like that sort of, it gives people permission to not just try and go for everything and hope that they'll hit a target and something will work. But there is a lot of pressure in organisations to get a lot of stuff done quickly. It does feel like, particularly after 2020, now even more so in 2023. So how much time should organisations spend creating the plan for DEI versus taking action? I love this question because I think that quite often gets missing. So what happens when I turn up to organisations is they've got all of these brilliant people that have been contributing and sharing and, you know, maybe doing comms and events and programmes and initiatives and that's all wonderful, right? If you've got people like that in your organisation, 
so much energy. If you haven't got that, this stuff's really, really hard. So quite often I find all of that activity, but it's operating without a plan. People don't know yeah. what they're aiming for, right? They maybe read something on LinkedIn or they experienced something in their previous organization or they've read an article somewhere and they go, we should do this. And it kind of ends up being this big shopping list of activity yeah. that people are trying to navigate through and find. And to your point, even if they do make progress from that slightly chaotic approach, they don't know which thing it was. Yes. I've made the progress. So it's just this kind of scattered. So I think there's a really, you know, and I certainly find it with clients when I do their full sort of diagnostic and planning with them. There's a moment and a sigh of relief when I almost say, well, why don't you pause for the next few weeks? I'm going to work with you to research all of the things that you're doing, already doing, and all of the different things that are happening. And I'll plot that out for you and tell you what strengths are and where your actions for progress are. And then we'll validate that with all of the people that have taken part and we'll prioritize where to put your energy for the next 12 months. And I kind of see this collective like shoulders just go down. So I'm like, you don't have to do everything at once. And you'll know just as an individual listening, when you're trying to do 100 things at once, sometimes it just feels like you're not doing anything very well at all. This is exactly the same thing. If you can pick one thing that you go, do you know what? If I were to look back on this in three months or six months or 12 months and be like, we nailed it. I feel really good about that. That's the thing you should focus your energy on. And actually, if you can continue doing that, that one thing brilliantly, and no matter how many people you are, there are in your organization, the culmination of all those one things brilliantly actually add up to quite significant change and you go further faster. So if you've got leaders leading different departments or regions or however the makeup of your organization is, if you can one, equip those leaders with the skills to be a more inclusive leader, you can give them a bit of data to understand what's happening in their own world and the choices and the decisions that they're making. And you can say, don't worry about all of the hundreds of things that we need to do as an organization. This is what I think the one thing brilliantly is in this world. Let's just go for that. That's so much more inspiring and empowering for leaders. And of it course. leads to much faster, bolder results. Yeah. How do they then balance off the pressure, maybe externally as well as internally? How do leaders demonstrate that they're taking action, yep. enough action to satisfy the rest of the organization? How you get rid of that feeling of overwhelm that there's too much to do and not enough time? Yeah, no, it's a fair point. So when clients work with me on the sort of longer term inclusion diagnostic I have, they end up with about 50 actions off the back of working with me. But it's not about going and doing that all on a Thursday afternoon. Of course. So that detail gets structured into a, a one-page plan. You know, there's a vision, there's three pillars, there's a bunch of commitments, and there's, importantly, how that will be tracked. And again, that one-page plan isn't about delivering that all in the next three weeks, right? It is a long-term plan, and it's completely transparent. It's shared with everybody that took part in the process and, you know, wider stakeholders and, and actually anybody else that's interested in the organization. Transparency is a big thing that I encourage. But then being able to say, and here's where we're going to focus for the next 12 months because we recognize we can't do all that at once. People are okay with that. They are actually, aren't because they? Because if they can see, okay, this is a really robust plan. We appreciate that's not all going to happen overnight. I can see where we're putting our energy this year. Let me help or let me contribute. People are okay with that. What they're not okay with is 
we don't know what we're doing. We don't know if it's working. I've told you this 500 times and it doesn't feel like anybody's hurt me. Yeah. That's where people get frustrated. It's so true. And I think sometimes leaders, senior leaders, don't give their employees enough credit, right? So they just think, oh, no, we have to because they're asking for it. You know, actually, if you talk to them, if you communicate with them, if you explain and you demonstrate that there is thought behind you, we've heard you, we've listened to you, and this is now the plan for the next three years or whatever, a lot of people appreciate that honesty and they appreciate as long as they then see something, obviously, different, they're committed to supporting the organisation in that endeavour as opposed to feeling miffed that things aren't happening quick enough. You're so, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's a bit like, you know, if you're waiting for a bus and the bus is running late, if you get a little message saying it'll be here in three minutes, you just feel a bit more relaxed than just the bus. Yes. Yeah, it's the psychology of it, isn't it? Yeah, something's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> this bus will come. Yeah. yeah. I love the shift in language between majority to overrepresented and minority and underrepresented. So just briefly explain how, again, we're talking psychology, which is why I'm linking to the last conversation. What's the psychology behind shifting that language? So I think for a long time we've used, we want to increase diversity as the kind of sentence, right? Which sort of puts the label and the problem on that group of people, the people that we haven't yet been currently attracting. Whereas I think the shift in talking about we want to address over-representation as an example actually helps our minds understand the problem that we're trying to solve, right? That's so not about those it's around we've got an over-representation issue. So if we want to build better products and services, if we want to be better at research and design, if we want to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, actually we really recognise that we need to build some collective intelligence and have all kinds of lived experiences, be that industry experience, be that educational experience, be that your personal demographics and your lived experiences actually addressing over-representation, some of the really biggest awful things in the world that have gone wrong, there have been really super smart, intelligent people that were involved, but they all had a really similar kind of profile. So when other people that perhaps weren't in that immediate bubble were speaking up and offering another suggestion, it just wasn't being heard. So I think it's a real subtlety, but it's the overrepresentation that's the problem, not the lack of diversity. And I know they sound like the same thing, but it's very subtle. It's very subtle. And I, that's what it made me think. I read it and I thought, actually, that's a really helpful shift in language. You know, because as you say, we're not talking about the majority, which is people. We're talking about fixing an overrepresentation issue, yeah. which takes it, it just depersonalizes it. Yeah. Uh, and it feels less threatening. Because in, Decision 78 is around shifting the power dynamic, okay? And you say most diversity emphasis has been on fixing the underrepresented instead of equipping the overrepresented to create an environment where everyone can succeed. So what can organisations do to equip the overrepresented? So there are the learning experiences, bringing people together, safe place to share their fears, ask questions, like literally show up to learn, be a bit vulnerable, be courageous, but then give people really practical actions and think about their daily habits when they're talking to people. So really setting people up to hold a conversation, 
to ask questions, to encourage respectful disagreement, to create that psychological safety, to be aware that not everyone's experiences are the same and you won't know unless you kind of create the space for people to speak up. So there's, there's one bit there around the really practical things. The other bit then is around data. I'm a huge fan of data. So whether you're looking at employee experience or customer experience or recruitment or customer retention or your supply chain, whatever it is that you are doing that you have influence on or your marketing or your building design or your tech infrastructure, you know, who's it working for? Who isn't it working for? Who are you appealing to? Who aren't you appealing to? Who's having a good experience? Who's having a bad experience? So often we look at the total aggregated score and if you've got big groups of overrepresentation, they will be masking the experience is of people that are from underrepresented groups. So the more you can break that data out to really understand the differences in people's experiences, yes. you're literally equipping, you know, departmental leaders, whatever it might be, with valuable information about the work that they're already doing and they're already skilled and experienced in delivering. You're literally just helping them to do it in a more inclusive way. Yeah. I think it's so important to be able to have that data for leaders to feel like they've got, well, firstly, evidence and proof that something needs doing differently, but also that they've got something to speak about and communicate and almost that there's a reason behind why we're doing something. Yeah, it's really compelling, I think, as a leader. You see big gaps in experience. You think, well, that's not what I wanted to create. I didn't wake up this morning and think, how can I create a worse environment for one group of people in a better environment from that. That's not what people, I don't believe that. Exactly. But when you see that that's true, you go, oh, you know, there's a bit of personal feeling and emotion attached to that and, and people are compelled to change it. Yeah, absolutely. Very quickly coming to the end of our conversation, um, I am asking uh, a final question to all my guests, which is related to the book that I'm writing, which is called Beyond Discomfort. And I'm interested in the most uncomfortable thing that you've had to navigate or manage in yourself or a conversation you've had to had to date that's pushed you, stretched you as a, an inclusive leader. This is another big question. <laughs> Do you know what? If I, if I may quickly, I'm going to share three things. So one is a personal thing. So I'm somebody with pale skin and blonde hair. And I used to, if I'd done something a bit silly or not so, thought something through, I used to say, oh, I'm being a bit blonde. Yeah, and someone okay. challenged me on that years ago and I was really defensive at the time I didn't respond in the way that I might respond today and I was like oh don't be so silly it's not that serious you know and kind of brushed it off but actually now I was like oh I'm kind of giving permission to people to suggest that me and other people that look like me are stupid so that was a big personal lesson for me it wasn't massively discomforting but my reaction was because I was really defensive and that's the bit that stayed with me I didn't I wasn't kind of open to the feedback at the time I get that I am now I've got much better this version of me is a much more evolved version than that version of me and then I guess just in terms of probably speaking truth to people in power it can be quite uncomfortable so whether that's something that somebody more senior has said or done to me or has said or done to you know another woman or somebody from an underrepresented group I've had to do that a few times in my career sometimes it's been handled brilliantly other times not so much and I recognize I am in a position of privilege here you know I made a commitment to myself about 10 years ago that I would always have enough money in the bank to walk away 
right. if an organization no longer kind of matched my values or I didn't feel safe or protected. And I have done that on a couple of occasions. <laughs> so those occasions are quite uncomfortable, you know, and I recognize not everybody can do that. If you are in a position to do that, you know, have a look at your outgoings because actually it's quite liberating not being stuck somewhere that just saying this doesn't make sense to me anymore. So yeah, loads of experience. It was quite hard to kind of pinpoint one, but I think if you know who you are and what's important to you and what you stand for, and then you can really stand by that, even the most uncomfortable circumstances can just be a little bit less uncomfortable. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared today, Catherine. It's just amazing to speak to you, to hear such practical what I love about your, your, as I say, about your book and everything that you're doing is it's so digestible and practical. If people want to get hold of you, you're on social media. Is are there other ways to get hold of you? Yeah, so you go ahead and find me on LinkedIn. I tend to post stuff fairly regularly on there. Super practical, simple stuff. That's kind of my thing. If you want more, want to know about my services, my website is compellingculture.co.uk. And then the last bit I would mention, some people really love this. I publish a, a monthly newsletter. I'm often asked about which organisations are doing a really good job. So my newsletter is called Crown Jewels and Whoopsie Daisy. So the Crown Jewels are great examples that I've seen in organisations that month. Just a couple of sentences and the link if you want more. And the Whoopsie Daisy is one example where it's not gone so well. But importantly, what we can learn from it, I think a lot of people just scrub to the Whoopsie Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to really like it. I love that. It's very British. I love it for that Britishness. The whoop, whoopsie daisy did something a little bit exclusionary there. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, the link to everything that Catherine and I have spoken about today is going to be available on the usual show notes page, avenirconsultingservices.com under podcasts. I've absolutely loved speaking to you, Catherine. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That concludes episode 35 of Why Care. I love Catherine's data-led approach to better understanding how different people experience the organization and then involving them to create inclusion. Build with, not for, she says. Do let Catherine and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on LinkedIn, Insta and X, formerly Twitter, with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. Huge thanks to Mauro at Kenji Productions for editing this podcast and Glory Olibori for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media.